Well, good morning once again. We are here this morning continuing our series, Rediscover Church. And if you've been coming for any length of time, you know that usually each week I'll mention what the big idea of the series has been. And it has been mainly to discover or rediscover the church. Uh, for some of you, um, you, it's been a while since you've been in church. Others of you have been uh, participating for years and years and years. And um, there are those that are watching that are unable to be a part of the local church, at least gathering together. And the truth is, there's a lot about the church that we don't understand. And so our life groups have been going through a book called Rediscover Church, a sermon series dovetails with all of that. But it's to discover or to rediscover the church and the joy and the power and the responsibility of being a part of it. And so that's the overarching theme of, of, of our study. And uh, last week, we talked about church discipline. Uh, as a means of demonstrating love um, to a wayward believer and to other members in the body of Christ and even to the larger community. And this morning, uh, I have the privilege of talking about loving the brethren because it's not always easy to do that. You know, Jesus said that we are to love our neighbor as ourselves, And of course, we want to know, well, who is my neighbor? We want to know, is there a way out? Well, Jesus doesn't give us a way out. He even said we're to love our enemies. And so I think that kind of encapsulates everyone. If, we, if we're to love our enemies, we're to love our neighbor, we're to love the brethren, our brothers and sisters in Christ. And so that's what we'll be talking about this morning is how do we love members in the church? And specifically, how do we love those members in the church who are different? That's the challenge. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time together this morning. Thank you for your word to us, for the wisdom and the guidance, the instruction that it provides, the correction, the reproof. Lord, we pray this morning that you would kindle our hearts afresh, not only our love for you, but our love for one another. The Lord, that we would take seriously your command to love one another. And uh, Father, that we would just acknowledge the fact that we are, are fallen creatures. We struggle. Um, but we also acknowledge that if we are in Christ, we have your Holy Spirit to help us, to give us the power to do what we cannot do in our own strength. So Lord, I pray that you would speak through me this morning. Encourage our hearts, we pray. Amen. I stumbled across a poem or a it's my wife likes to say a poem, <laughs> poem, I think. Um, Alistair Begg does, I found out it's, it's from Scotland. That's, they say it differently there. And much of Southern language is actually taken from England and from, from Scotland. So, but uh, he said this, or not he, but the, the poem reads, I think I, that I shall never see a church whose members never stray beyond the straight and narrow way whose pastor never has the blues, a church that has no empty pews, a church whose deacons always deek and none is proud and all are meek, where gossips never peddle lies or make complaints or criticize, 
where all are always sweet and kind, and all to others' faults are blind. Such perfect churches there may be, but none of them are known to me, but still will work and pray and plan to make our own the best we can. I like that. And that's what we aim to do here at New Life. But it's hard work. And sometimes we don't realize just how hard it is. Because the church is not made up of clones where we all act, think, look alike, talk alike. The church is not made up of perfect people. It's made up of imperfect people who are striving to follow a perfect savior. There's a huge difference there. Now, there are those who are on the outside looking in that might be tempted to think that the church gathers together because we're so alike. I mean, they, they just kind of group us into this one kind of, well, that's, that's what they're like. They're just kind of like programmed that way, I guess. But the church is actually a gathering of diverse people. And sometimes we forget that. Maybe we're not cognizant of that. The men that Jesus called to be his disciples, they looked pretty much the same to those on the outside looking in. I mean, they were male, lower class Jews. No women. Very easy to classify them. But they too were very different. Jesus brought together a diverse group of men who wouldn't have necessarily have ever been friends. They wouldn't have necessarily ever co-labored together. Think about it. Matthew was a tax collector. He was considered a traitor by his countrymen for collecting taxes for the occupying Romans. And, and he would line their coffers with money from his own people, and he would line his own pockets as well. Among those Jesus called was Simon the Zealot, a firebrand who is intent on overthrowing the Romans and driving them from their land. And then there's Peter, James, and John, who from all accounts were lousy fishermen. <laughs> Judas was an opportunist and a thief. And we're not sure about the background of the others. See, when you stop to think about it, this, this, this was an eclectic group of people. And Jesus ministered to a, a pretty extremely eclectic group of people. He ministered to children and adults, both men and women, believers and skeptics. He healed the blind and the lame. He welcomed those who were ostracized. He, including Matthew, the collaborator, and prostitutes. He spent time eating and drinking with sinners, and then he sent his apostles into the world to proclaim the gospel to anyone and everyone who would listen, both Jew and Gentile, slave and free, rich and poor. The truth is, there is no other institution on the earth quite like the church. It's made up of people from every tribe, every nation, every tongue, just being in South Africa this, this past year was a reminder to me that God has his people all over the world. And they don't look like me or talk like me or even act like me. But they love Jesus. 
And it's a re- it was a reminder to me of the diversity that exists in God's church. And even here at New Life, we have young and old, married and single, new believers and veterans in the faith. We come from all over the country and all over the world. We have different skin tones, accents, family, educational, and religious backgrounds. We have unique personalities and religious backgrounds. We've got different occupations, spiritual gifts, theological and political leanings. We also have values and preferences that may differ from one, one from another. So the, so the church is not as homogenous as you might think. So how do we love people who are so different from ourselves? You know, the church is made up of many different members, but we are all members of one body. Scripture teaches us that we are of one spirit, of one mind, that we have the same love, that we are intent on the same purpose. And though there is great diversity in the church, there is also great unity in our diversity. But again, I ask the question, how can we love people who are so different from ourselves? How do we achieve the kind of unity that is described in Scripture? I believe the answer lies in rediscovering the wonder and the power of the fellowship of difference. If you've read chapter seven in the book, Rediscover Church, you'll, you'll note that they use that term, the fellowship of difference. And so um, I'd, li- I'd like to, to pray again here as, as I go forward. Father, I, I ask that you would just help us this morning. Help us to see the beauty and the wonder of your church, that you might use us to build up the body of Christ that we might bring glory to you. Amen. If you have your Bibles, John chapter 13, verses 34 through 35, Jesus said this, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this All people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now notice what Jesus didn't say. Jesus didn't say that people will know that you are my disciples if you're pious. If you've got your doctrine down pat, if you're devout even. No, what he says here is all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So that begs the question, doesn't it? How how does our love for one another cause the world to know that we are his disciples and thereby take notice of Christ? I think it's because true love is lacking in the world. I think the world is desperate for love. The problem is, is that they're looking for it in all the wrong places. And despite claims to the contrary, the world really doesn't know what love is. That's what makes the church so attractive, or at least it ought to. See, we are the fellowship of difference, 
And we are called to love one another. And when the world sees us doing that, it recognizes a power and a strength and an impetus, a, a reason for why we are able to do it and they are unable to find it in the world. Colin Hansen in the book Rediscovered Church said this, that the church gets noticed by the world, brings together people who don't normally associate. The tax collectors and zealots, the sinners and the Pharisees, that's what made the early church so strange that some said it had turned the world upside down. That's the church that gets noticed. A church where its members truly love one another. As I've been thinking about this over the last uh, couple of weeks, I believe that to truly love members who are different and members who are not, that four things must be true of us. The first, I think, is the most obvious, and that is we must be born again. We need to recognize that loving anyone the way Jesus intended for us to do it is not possible in our own strength. We need a new heart and a new spirit. In the book of Ezekiel, chapter 11, the Lord says, and I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh so that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. Of course, the context there is talking about the nation of Israel, but God is looking forward beyond what was happening in the here and now. He was looking beyond their captivity and their restoration, and he was looking forward to the church. And, and just a few chapters later uh, in Ezekiel 36, he says something similar. He says, moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. This is what it means to be born again, to be regenerated by the spirit of God. And the you know, growing up, you know, when I finally heard that term, born again, I had no clue as to what it meant. I think I may have shared with you at one point, I thought the only people who were born again were those Christians who couldn't be really good Christians the first time around, and so they needed like a second chance. They, so they were failures. They were losers in my, in my world. And I, I didn't have to be born again because I wasn't a loser, that's the way I thought. But the reality is the Bible says that we need to be born again is because we're all sinners. We have all sinned and fall short of God's glory. And that the wages of sin is death, eternal separation from God. And nobody can force their way into God's family, into his kingdom. You know, I was adopted um, I wasn't born into the family that took me home from the hospital. And, I, and, I, and I've shared with you many times, you know, that, that my mom used to tell me I'm special because other parents don't have a choice in whom they bring home from the hospital, but we chose you. And so very early on in my Christian life, I, I grasped this idea of what it meant to be adopted into God's family. But you know, it's even better than that. 
because God by his spirit caused me to be born into his family, to be born again, to become a child of God. And everyone who has put their faith and their trust in Christ, the same is true for you. You have been born again by the spirit of God. You have been born from above. You've been given a new heart, a new spirit. You have a new nature now. And you're a part of God's forever family. And add to that, you've been adopted. So you get a double blessing. When we are born again, God's spirit comes to dwell in us. He empowers us to do what we could never do on our own. He enables us to love the fellowship of difference. The apostle John writes in 1 John 4, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Paul writes in Romans 5 that God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And in addition to this, in Galatians chapter 5, he tells us that love is a fruit of the Spirit. It is a byproduct of the Spirit's work in the hearts of those who are yielded to him. So we need to be born again to truly love one another because our sinful nature, our natural bent is to love ourselves. To seek what's best for me, myself, and I. To look out for number one. And God is calling us to a different kind of life. We need to be born again to truly love one another, but we must also be committed to a local church, and be in community with other believers. Now, this only makes sense, right? I mean, what good is it to have the power to love others if you're not with others, if you're not among them? You, you can't really love people you don't know. Not really. I mean, you can pray for them. We can donate clothing and food. We can write a check but you can't really love people the way Jesus envisioned without getting up close and personal. We need to rub shoulders with those that we are called to love and not just those who are like us. We need to cultivate relationships with people who are different from ourselves. And I'll be the first to confess, I find it much easier to be with people with whom I have an affinity for that I have things in common with. That's just natural. But we need to work hard to go beyond that. It's easy to love people who are like us. It's easy to love people um, who love us. Anyone can do that. Jesus says as much. In Matthew chapter five, he writes, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. See, everyone loves those who love them. It's easy to love people who think and talk and act just like we do. It's much harder to love people who don't love us 
or who are different from us or whom we perceive to be different from us. People may not be as different as we think. It could be that you just don't really know them. You may have judged them wrongly. On the other hand, you just might be as odd to them as they are to you. But guess what? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Jesus isn't calling you to be best buds uh, with those who, whom are different from you. He's simply calling you to love them. And you can't do that if you're not committed to the local church and if you're not in community with other believers. You know, think about it again. Jesus called to himself a ragtag group of misfits and he forged a fellowship of difference and he loved them to the end. And Jesus is calling us to love, not just those who love us or are like us, but those who are different. We need to rediscover the wonder and the power of the fellowship of difference, not run from it. So again, we ask, how do we do it? How do we love those who are different? Well, certainly it would involve not doing certain things, but I want to focus on a few things that we are to do that demonstrate, improve our love for one another. So not only do we need to be born again and be committed to a local church and be in community with other believers, we must walk in a manner worthy of our calling. We see that in Ephesians chapter four. Paul writes, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. This text could be a sermon in itself, and, and I just, I can't unpack it all. But, but in answering the question, how do we walk in a manner worthy of our calling, I think he kind of answers it for us here. We do it with all humility. We don't think more highly of ourselves than we ought. We seek the interests of others and not merely our own interests. We do it with gentleness. We're not gruff. We're, 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 we're gentle. We do it with patience. And again, I confess, I struggle with that. It's hard to be patient. It's hard to wait. Sometimes you know, pray, you're waiting on God. God, you know, I'm, I'm waiting on you, I'm waiting on you, and you know, it doesn't happen, and I'm tempted to take things into my own hands. We do it by bearing with one another in love. I love uh, some of the older translations that talk about let your forbearing spirit be made known to all. It's we put up with one another because we recognize that none of us are perfect, that we're all sinners saved by grace, that we're all gonna fail. We're all gonna make mistakes. 
And we need to be willing to extend grace, the same grace that we have received. We need to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. And I love in chapter 4 that, that Paul throws this ahead in that chapter. And he speaks about the unity of the Spirit. And then down later in the chapter, he talks about the unity of the faith. And so when you read it, you realize that what Paul is saying is that we are to be diligent to maintain the unity of the Spirit until we attain the unity of the faith. Meaning, you don't make unity of the Spirit predicated upon unity of the faith. If we had to agree on everything we could have no fellowship. So we maintain the unity of the spirit and we work towards understanding and agreement in doctrine. And we are eager to maintain the unity of the spirit, it says, in the bond of peace. In 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 11, this is the second half of the verse. Paul says, live in peace and the God of love and peace will be with you. Now we're gonna look at that first part of the verse in just a minute. But here what Paul is saying is that we must strive to live in peace with one another. Well, how do we do that? Knowing that we're so different. I think some of the things is, first, I think we need to resist the temptation to assume the worst about others and, and develop animosity towards them. We, we, we need to resist that. We must refuse to allow a root of bitterness to creep in and spring up and cause trouble. We must fight against anything that would cause division in the church. And in addition to these things, we love the fellowship of difference by aiming for restoration, by comforting and agreeing with one another. We see that in 2 Corinthians 13. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. The word translated restoration here means to be set right or to mend or to put in order. It's as if Paul has in mind something that is broken that must be put back together. It's actually a picture of completeness. If any of you have the New American Standard, um, you'll notice that it's translated, be made complete. You know, restoring broken relationships is difficult work. But this is what the gospel is all about. We must be willing to lay down our scorecards. We, we, we must be willing to lay aside resentment and bitterness, which prevents reconciliation, restoration, and completeness. Like what Paul says in Ephesians 4, verse 30, he says, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Back in our text, Paul says we're to comfort one another. That's the Greek word parakaleo, which literally means to urge or to implore, or to exhort or encourage 
or console. So the need for comfort implies the existence of pain. Every church experiences pain in many, many different ways, from relational conflict to persecution to everything in between. The need to comfort or to console goes hand in hand with aiming for restoration. And then he says, agree with one another. And it doesn't mean we have to agree on everything. It's okay to agree to disagree. I would say, except for the core doctrines of the faith. You know, Paul himself had a sharp disagreement with a guy named Barnabas, if you remember. I think what Paul is saying here is that we must strive for unity and live in harmony by having the same focus and the same purpose. I think this is what it means to live in peace with one another. Another way that we demonstrate our love for members who are different and for members who, quite frankly, might be the same as us in many ways, by serving one another. Serving one another is a way of demonstrating love. In Galatians 5, Paul writes, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Another way that we demonstrate love to others is by how we speak to one another and about one another. Colossians 4 says, Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt. And then in Ephesians 4, verse 15, Paul says, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. And then down just a few verses later, verse 29, he says this, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. So how we speak to one another and about one another is a way of demonstrating our love. Another way is by being compassionate and kind and forgiving of one another. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 12, Paul writes, Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. We are to be compassionate and kind and patient towards one another. In verse 13, Paul again says that we're to bear with one another. What he means here is that we're to be tolerant of people's shortcomings. We're to be tolerant of their failures and their idiosyncrasies. We're to, again, let our forbearing spirit be made known to all. 1 Peter 4, 8, he says, above all, above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude 
of sins. You know, instead of expecting perfection from our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, we need to allow them to err. I know that almost doesn't make sense. But we allow them to err, trusting that Jesus is at work in their lives to make them into the person he created them to be. We don't have to play the Holy Spirit. And if and when they sin against us, we must be willing to forgive them. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Paul says something similar in Ephesians 4.32. He says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Here in verse 14 in, in Colossians there, Paul tells us that love is the glue that holds all these wonderful Christ-like qualities together. And it does so in perfect harmony. So to love those members who are different, we must live in a manner worthy of our calling. But at the end of the day, love is really a matter of obedience. And that's my fourth and final point this morning is that we must choose to obey God's word. In John 15, Jesus said, this is my commandment, not suggestion. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than someone laid down his life for his friends, and you are my friends if you do what I command you. Jesus commands us to love one another. He isn't commanding us to have feelings for one another, though I think we ought to have brotherly affection for one another. He is commanding us to act lovingly towards one another. It is a decision of the will. We must choose to obey the Lord and love the fellowship of difference. The Apostle John writes in his first epistle in chapter three, and this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he commanded us. I mean, think about that. He's talking about the commandment of the Lord, and that first one, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and then he tags onto it, something of equal importance, that we love one another. I mean, our, our, our mission really flows out of that as a church. We, we are to love God, but we are to love people, especially our brothers and sisters in Christ. In 1 John chapter 4, John writes, we love because he first loved us. And if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And then in verse 21, he writes, and this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Not loving members who are different is not an option for Christians. 
Peter says as much in 1 Peter chapter 1 when he says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. So how do we love members who are different? By rediscovering the wonder and the power of the fellowship of difference. It begins by being born again. It requires that we be committed to a local church and be in community with other believers, that we walk in a manner worthy of our calling, and that we be obedient to God in his word. We shall never be a perfect church, but still we'll work and pray and plan to make our own the best we can. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this morning and for your word to us and the reminder of what you have called us to do, of who you have called us to be. Lord, it's an amazing thought that you have brought such a ragtag group of people together, such are gathered in this room, and such that are gathered in buildings all across the world, people who worship you in spirit and in truth. Lord, would you continue to do a deep work in all of your children, so that we might love you more and that we might also love the brethren and that the world would take notice that you are indeed the Christ, the Messiah, the son of the living God because they see us loving one another. In Jesus' name, amen.